and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Dr. Karina Macaloni, a senior lecturer in applied health psychology, to talk about her research that explores the impact the first lockdown has had on our mental health. Karina, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's great to see you today. Hi, Greg. Nice to see you. Let's start by outlining the research there. Karina, can you tell me about this study? Sure. The study is the COVID-19 Psychological Wellbeing Study, which is run in partnership between GCU and Queen's University Belfast. So Kerry McPherson, the head of department in psychology, and myself run the Scottish bit of the study. And the overall study is looked after by Professor Cherie Armour at Queen's University Belfast. And the study was a rapid response online survey, which was designed to look at psychological well-being and health during the COVID pandemic. The survey was launched just a couple of days into the first lockdown and it continued for three months. So it's a, it's a longitudinal survey where we followed everybody up once a month for those three months from the start of lockdown. And we managed to recruit around um, quite a large number of those individuals are from Scotland. So we've got a nice um, sample from Scotland that we can do some um, research to look specifically at the population of Scotland. And we asked them quite a lot of information about their experiences of COVID-19, um, about who they were as individuals and about their health and well-being over the course of the, that first lockdown. So how did the people respond to this, Karina? What were some of their reactions to the first lockdown? Okay, so um, they were responding to it online on an online questionnaire that we sent out to them. And they, at each time point, were asked very similar questions. So we asked them about some of their experiences of COVID-19 itself, some of their behavioural responses around whether or not they um, were self-isolating, whether they were working at home, whether they had been quarantined, and how they felt about getting vaccinated. And we also asked them about some of their behaviours during the lockdown. So things like alcohol consumption and other activities of their, their daily life. And then psychological measures that we asked for were symptoms of depression, anxiety and PTSD. But the PTSD was specifically around PTSD reactions to COVID-19 as the, the stressful event. So what were some of the common responses then? Were there any common answers that came from the respondents? Well, in order to measure those in a in a reliable and a valid way we used uh, standardized tests so for depression okay. we used the patient health questionnaire nine for anxiety we used the generalized anxiety disorder seven measure and the ptsd measure was the pcl5 which we adopted for covid19 those are very standardized measures which address common symptoms of each of those disorders all of which are things that everybody will normally experience but what mm -hmm. we're trying to do there is, is gather up or understand how severe those experiences are for people. So for depression, it's things like um, feeling low, um, having trouble concentrating for anxiety, it's about feeling anxious and nervous and PTSD. It's things around being upset when remembering the experience or avoiding memories of that experience. So those were the measurement tools we used that we had people report on those types of symptoms. But what we found is that straight after, in that first month of the lockdown, people were reporting really high levels of those symptoms. 
And in particular, each of those measures has a cutoff that allows us to say above a certain score, somebody would probably screen as having that condition rather than okay. just a lower symptoms. Around a third of people who took part in the survey in that first month were reporting high levels of depression and anxiety consistent with having those conditions and around 20% of the participants were reporting levels of PTSD symptoms that were clinically significant. And then most recently what Kerry and I have been looking at is how that has changed over the last 12 weeks or over the, the first 12 weeks of the COVID lockdown. And what we find is that we can see four distinct groups of people. So we have a group of people, the majority of people who have quite low levels of those symptoms for the entire 12 weeks. And then we have a smaller group of people who quite worryingly have really high levels of those symptoms mm -hmm. that are consistent with the condition. So consistent with having depression, anxiety or PTSD, and they stay high for the entire 12 weeks. And then in the middle, we have two groups of people, a group of people who seem to be quite resilient, who start off in that first month with reactionary um, high levels of those, those conditions, but that those taper off and come back down below that clinical threshold after 12 weeks. And then a group of people who start off with very low levels of symptoms, but over the course of 12 weeks, those symptoms rose to clinically significant levels as having depression, anxiety or PTSD. Were you surprised by your findings from this survey? In some ways, no. So there is some existing research out there which does show that um, in a stressful event such as this, there will be increases in people's mental health symptoms. So it's perfect. It is entirely expected that these symptoms would increase in the population. I think what was was surprising though were, were the patterns that we found, so that we particularly those two groups which see the change. So finding a group with low level of symptoms is something that we would we would expect in any population and finding a group that has very high levels of symptoms that say consistently high is not altogether unexpected given what we know about how people respond to these events but also knowing that many individuals will have had mental health issues before they come in to experiencing the pandemic before they were included in our study and certainly that's one of the things that was associated with being in that high symptom mm -hmm. group for the entire 12 weeks having a mental health condition prior to the pandemic. But what is surprising is some of the patterns that we see in those groups where we have the resilient group and the group with increasing symptoms. So our resilience group is something that's very much associated with being female. So there's something right. there that is quite interesting to explore. And, and that is particularly interesting whenever we look at anxiety. So women were more likely to start with high anxiety and for this um, decreased over time. Women were also more likely to have really low levels of PTSD the entire time, which is unusual because women tend to score higher on PTSD measures than men and we think that that possibly has to do with the a delayed reaction effect for women so kinds of PTSD after we've come out of the pandemic and finished okay. with restrictions and that maybe that this is a delayed response. So what are some of the the short and the long-term effects that the pandemic has had on people's mental health? I think in the short term what we've seen is a, a very clear reactionary response where we have higher levels of symptoms than what we, we would expect in the population. And that's probably to be expected. It's a very traumatic event. It's caused a, a major change in people's lives, along with a lot of fear because of the very nature of what this traumatic event is. And because it's quite a prolonged event, so it hasn't been something that has happened and we've moved past it and are now dealing with the repercussions of it, the event's still happening. We're still mm -hmm. ex experiencing COVID. We're still experiencing um, lockdown restrictions or have the threat of them potentially hanging over us. So it's still something that people are processing as an active event. So in the short term, 
that reactionary increase of symptoms certainly was to be expected. Long term, that's almost harder to gimmick. What we need to really understand more about is what this prolonged kind of traumatic exposure is doing later whenever the pandemic is over and whenever people are having to readjust their lives yet again and we can see that with people having to now you know move from working at home back to working yeah. in their offices working in buildings so that's another stage of adjustment people will have to go through and that will have most likely its own set of impacts on people's mental health mm -hmm. and well-being so long term i'm not sure that we know what those effects are going to be but it's something that we need to monitor quite closely <laughs> Do you reckon that's the next stage of this research then is to manage how people have come out the other side now that we're seeing, it's been 18 months since we first went into lockdown, the majority of the country have been vaccinated, restrictions are beginning to lift. Do you reckon that's the next step then is to look at how the lockdown has affected us in a post-lockdown world? Yeah, I think that will be very important moving forward that we need to understand the pandemic or the impact of the pandemic itself. We need to understand the impact of lockdowns and also the impact of changing restrictions for people but we are going to have to know more about whenever we come out of this how are people adjusting what is the impact for people as they come back to whatever the version of normal is that we're going to have at the end of all of this and we don't know what that's going to look like yet but understanding moving across those kind of stages of understanding what's happening and that's a really important thing that we need to do. Do you think there's enough mental health provision to support these people who have been affected by lockdown? Is there enough to go around? I think that we have a lot of mental health provision out there and I do believe the Scottish Government have put um, resource into providing more mental health provision. Is there ever enough of it? I'm not quite <laughs> sure that I could ever say yes to that, Craig. I think that mental health is one of those um, aspects of our health that probably doesn't get as much attention as it should. And if we had a bottomless pit of money, I would throw lots and lots of money at mental health support and provision but what i think is really important is that people know that there is mental health provision out there and that they try and uptake it if they can and that focus is given to it in terms of funding and resourcing so that we can make sure that we do support people and i think the pandemic and the the impact that that's having on people certainly gives us reason to want more provision in this area is certainly an argument for investing further and providing more support for individuals because we are going to be feeling the consequences of this for quite a long time. Yeah, that kind of leads me nicely on to my next question there. You know, the pandemic's affected everyone across the country. In fact, a lot of everyone are, are around the world and, and people have reacted to it in different ways. Is there perhaps a worry that some people might feel stigmatised? People who haven't reacted as well to it, haven't shown as a, a greater degree of resilience compared to other people. Yeah, I think that there always is that risk, particularly if people compare comparing themselves against other people and how they have responded. Interestingly, in that kind of pattern that we saw longitudinally, mm -hmm. the group who started off with the, the lowest levels, who then increased in their levels of anxiety, depression and PTSD, one of the factors most associated with that was people's experiences or worries about being stigmatised due to having right. COVID-19. So this group of individuals were worried that they would be stigmatized by other people if they were diagnosed with COVID-19 or if they had symptoms of it or if they were isolating. And that's quite an interesting finding because it does suggest this kind of sense of worry about other people, about being judged particularly around how we responded to the pandemic and that that can impact on our mental health. So, and that's a very physical thing. And I think, you know, physical worry that people have because in terms of catching COVID-19, a lot of the responsibility for that has been personal, about wearing masks, socially distancing, yeah. washing hands, using alcohol gel. And so 
it's not unexpected or surprising that people would maybe worry that catching COVID-19 would be a message to other people that they hadn't engaged with those behaviours and then they would be judged and that that could then have an impact on people's mental health, on their depression, anxiety and PTSD. And as we move forward, I say there could be things that we could need to consider around whether people are stigmatised for not dealing as well with the pandemic, mm -hmm. for not being as resilient, for having those conditions or higher levels of symptoms whenever other people haven't shown that kind of reaction, whenever it's entirely normal for everybody to experience the feelings that they're experiencing, they're their feelings and you know nobody should be able to judge them for that. But it's something we do need to keep an eye on how that impacts on people's mental health as well. So how do we use this research then, Karina, going forward? How can we put it into a practical context? I think the important thing that we learned from this research and the thing that we have to be mindful whenever we're looking at what to do with this is that it allows us to see that different people experience the pandemic and their mental health consequences as a result of the pandemic in different ways. It allows us to identify key groups who are particularly at risk of poor mental health as a result of the lockdowns or at least during the lockdowns. So people who already had mental health conditions are a particular group that are vulnerable because their symptoms stay high consistently and they do need support and that may be compounded by their experience of the pandemic. But we also then can see that some individuals may be more resilient and therefore they may have factors in their lives which help to support them in dealing with it, while others may be experiencing things like stigma which increase their, their vulnerability to these symptoms and that allows us to identify key areas for intervention or key individual key individual groups individuals or groups who may need further support so that's really important it also allows us some insight into just how individuals respond in situations like this and that is really useful in doing some sort of forward planning for it. in an event such as this again we, we can look to this as a bit of evidence as to what we could be looking for to provide individuals with mm -hmm. support. Or indeed, if we were to go into another set of lockdowns, we, we already have some evidence about the groups that are most likely to need some additional support. Not that any of us wants to go there at all. <laughs> no, I'm glad you said that. Well, I, I saw a smile on your face. The prospect of going into is a fourth lockdown, it would be. That, is, yeah. uh, that sounds absolutely horrendous. But let's talk a bit about yourself, Karina. You are a senior lecturer in applied health psychology at the university. Could you tell me a little bit about your, your background in academia and, and how you got to the, the place you're, you're in just now? So yeah, I'm a senior lecturer in applied health psychology at GCU. I'm not a health psychologist, funnily enough, but I am a social psychologist. I um, have a, an undergraduate degree in uh, social psychology and a PhD in social psychology from the University of Ulster, which is in Northern Ireland, which is where I am from. My PhD research looked at the high contact between Catholics and Protestants impact on health and well-being, wow. um, particularly whenever individuals in Northern Ireland, they live in primarily very segregated areas. Mm -hmm. And then whenever they enter university, they start to mix with individuals from different backgrounds. And that's one of the first true contact experiences people in Northern Ireland will have. So I was investigating how that transition impact on health and well-being. And from there, I've worked at Queen's University Belfast as a researcher looking at child health and well-being, University of York looking at links between mother and child health and well-being, and then moved to Glasgow Caledonian 
nine years ago now to take up my post <laughs> as a lecturer um, where I teach on the undergraduate BSc Applied Psychology degree, the MSc in Forensic Psychology and our doctoral framework, primarily teaching research methods and statistics, but also teaching some health and social psychology. <laughs> Just jumping back to the piece of research you did about when you were in Northern Ireland about um, Catholic and Protestants and, and, and mixing together and the impact that can have on health and well-being. What were some of your findings from that? What we what I found whenever I was doing that, um, there's there some really interesting findings with that. So we essentially um, did a longitudinal study where we got individuals who were starting university just at the very start of entering first year and we asked them to fill in um, several um, measurement tools around their experience of mixing with other people, their identity, their social capital, and social capital is a construct which is around individuals' ability to network and to capacity to forge connections with other people, um, both horizontally, so with people who are, you know, at the same level, then, but, you know, vertically in terms of networking up sort of a, a work hierarchy or, you know, a, a community hierarchy around their perceptions of discrimination and their psychological well-being or depression and so we found that as people transitioned from their home environments which were highly segregated to the university environment and we followed them up at the end of the academic term and the end of the year their levels of psychological well-being got worse so we know from the contact literature in this area that bringing people together in this kind of environment because it uh, a sort of neutral environment where they're all working to the same goal of getting their degree that should result in better intergroup contact experiences so less prejudice less discrimination towards each other and better better attitudes and better beliefs about the other religious group but we've never really known much about what it does to mental health and certainly what I had found in my study was that it has a significant impact on their mental health and their mental health goes down as does their levels of self-esteem and that's most likely just because it's really challenging. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we did also find in that, though, was again about women. So women tended to manage to forge better or higher levels of social capital. So they're able to connect with people more. Um, they're able to make establish networks to support themselves and those around them. And that kind of carries them through that experience as well. It's remarkable. There are two studies, two completely different studies that have both found that women are more resilient in testing circumstances than men. Absolutely. <laughs> to be fair that in some ways that's not that unexpected because we can all think that in our if we look at the women that are in our lives they do tend to be the ones that are holding their families together or yeah. holding their um communities together or very often you know putting themselves and their own feelings to the side to help support other people come through and i'm sure we've all got examples of that from our own mm -hmm. lives so you know i definitely do so it's just something that rings <laughs> very true to me uh, are you working on anything in the future um, so Kerry and I are still working on the COVID-19 psychological well-being study. So with things that we do want to look at in particular, we're currently working at things on alcohol consumption to look how that okay. has changed over the course of 12 weeks. And we're also looking at actually specifically looking at the impact on families during the lockdown period. So we're able to disentangle that data from what we have. And other than that, I've got a few things that I'm working on at the minute, most notably the veteran family study that we're running again okay. with Professor Armour at Queen's looking at the psychological well-being of partners and children of military veterans in the UK. Oh, sounds excellent, Karina. I look forward to catching up with you once that study's been published to talk about it more in depth with you. But thank you so much for talking to me today. Great to talk to you and really important research. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> 
I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into this episode and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon when we'll be in conversation with another member of the GCU community to talk about all the great work that's going on across the institution. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast to get every episode sent straight to your listening device. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. Until the next time, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Thank you.